Good evening, Edgewater. How are you guys doing tonight? I'm good. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm good except for I walked in here and um, the sole of my shoe fell off. And I was like, I walked into church and lost my soul, so I don't know what that means. Um, but my mom has it. She's, she put it in a bag for me, and I, moms are always good for saving your soul. So um, appreciate that. And, uh, <laughs> and we got a great chapter tonight, so I'm excited. So let's pray, and then we will jump into it. Father, I thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to gather I thank you for all the kids being taught about you this evening, Lord. Thank you for the teachers and the volunteers who put in time and effort, Lord. I pray that they would be repaid for that, Lord. I pray that our kids back there would be learning about how to clone, how to become young men and women who follow after you and your words, Lord. I pray that we would be older men and women who follow after you and your words and create an example for those kids. So tonight as we look into um, this fantastic book of 2 Corinthians, that you would speak directly to our hearts and share with us that which you have for us to know this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter three. And before we jump in, there's a few things we have to cover. Because as you read through the two books of Corinthians, what you see with these letters, these epistles that Paul wrote to this church in Corinth, is they're pretty familiar. There's a lot of familiarity between Paul and the Corinthians. See, we've learned that there's actually probably four letters to the Corinthians. This might be the fourth, the last one. Paul went and planted this church, and he spent a long time there probably longer than any of the other churches. He was there for almost 18 months teaching them and pouring into them and explaining things of the word to them. And then he wrote them these letters and he had a second visit and now we have this fourth letter. And so what happens is this, there are things that Paul will say in the book of 2 Corinthians, specifically in our chapter tonight, where he doesn't fully explain what he's talking about because he's already explained it to the Corinthians. He's already spent all this time talking to them and teaching them. And so there's these little subjects that he'll touch on. But if you were in Corinth, if you were actually the reader of this letter originally, they would have meant a lot more things to you. So we have to talk about those before we jump in tonight. Because we all have those, right? Like, so let's use an Edgewater one. If I was to say Matt's giant guns, if you've been around for long enough, you would know we're talking about Matt's maybe not bodybuilder-sized biceps, right? I am not implying that he collects howitzers, okay? So those are the kind of things that we see as you go through this chapter where it's like, okay, we need to unpack ahead of time a few prerequisites because, you know, Algebra 2 is great, but if you didn't have the prerequisites of Algebra 1 and calculus and addition and subtraction, you're not going to get much out of it. And there's a few prerequisites before we jump into chapter 3 tonight, and they're this. We need some context. There's a biblical concept we really need to understand, and there's a character that we need some of his backstory. Okay, so first we need some context going into this chapter, because here's what had happened. In 1 Corinthians, we see the Corinthian church, 
They love Jesus. They want to follow after him. They're passionate for spiritual things, but they're pretty squirrely. And they're sinning and they're getting drunk at communion and they're celebrating some really weird things that they shouldn't be celebrating because there were these teachers that had come into Corinth and they had said, hey, you know, it's great that you're following after this Jesus guy, but, but you can still do all these other things. You can still live that life you want to live with all these prostitutes coming down from the temple in Corinth. That's okay. You can live like that. And Paul's like, no, no, we need some order here. We need some order. You can't do that. But now as we come into 2 Corinthians, specifically the chapter 3, we see another group of teachers that has come into Corinth, and they're called the Judaizers. And what these people did is they came down from Jerusalem or from Israel, and they came with these letters of recommendation. Hey, these are the awesome things that I've done. These are the other churches I've been to. This is why you should listen to me. But then they preached a gospel that was a little different than Paul's gospel. What they preached was the law. They were Judaizers. They came in and they said, okay, okay, Jesus is great. We love all that, but you also need to follow the law of Moses. It's Jesus plus the law. And you also should really get circumcised. It's Jesus plus circumcision. That's what leads to true faith. And that's the false gospel they were teaching. But it's a false gospel that creeps into our lives, my life, and the church even today. Because it's so easy to hear even well-meaning people say things that imply that it's Jesus plus. And it's never Jesus plus. But they say that. And we can even begin to think that in our own lives. Oh, it's Jesus plus church attendance. That what, that's what leads to a true walk of faith. It's Jesus plus spiritual gifts. That's what you need to be a really true Christian. It's Jesus plus tithing or Jesus plus a King James Bible. It's Jesus plus. And whenever you hear that, we need to do what Paul does and we need to stop and say, no, it's never Jesus plus. It's Jesus alone. But it gets very confusing because all those things are good, aren't they? Church attendance is great. Spiritual gifts are amazing. We appreciate tithing. And the Bible is excellent. It's not those things that the problem, it's the equation. Because the equation there is wrong. It's not Jesus plus spiritual gifts. It's Jesus plus faith equals true spiritual gifts in your life. It's Jesus plus the faith that we have in him that changes my heart and makes me want to be around God's people and drives me towards church attendance. It's not Jesus plus the law. Oh, the law is good. The law tells me how to treat people and how to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and might, but it's not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus in me that allows me to follow out the law. And that's what the Judaizers are coming in and they're telling Corinth. And Paul says, no, we need to put a stop to that because it's false and it's dangerous. And so what he really does in chapter three, the entire chapter is going to be a compare and contrast. Hey, this is their tactics of ministry, the Judaizers, and these are my tactics of ministry. And this is their message, the Judaizers, and this is my message. It's all compare and contrast. So that's the context. 
The second thing that we really have to have before we jump into this chapter is a concept. And the concept is this, it's the biblical concept of covenant. And it's hugely important if we're gonna understand God's plan that he has to redeem all of us that starts at the beginning of the book and runs all the way through. And Paul's huge on covenant. And he touches on it tonight, but he thinks that the people who are reading this letter understand covenant because I'm sure he's unpacked it to them. He's explained that in the Bible, a covenant is this. It's a promise that God makes to his people and then guidelines for their relationship with him that they promise to fulfill. God promises his people, hey, this is what I'll do for you. And then he sets out these guidelines for how their relationship is supposed to be and the people promise to walk by those guidelines. A covenant, though, is very different than a contract. And we have to get that. Because a contract has conditions, okay? A contract is if you fulfill these conditions, then this will happen. So like a contract with a bank for your car. If you make all of these payments, then we will send you the pink slip and the car will be yours. But if you don't contract, if you don't make all those payments, then we will send a guy with a bad tattoo and a bunch of mullets and he will come and he will take your car away and it will be our car. That's a contract, but that's not a covenant. See, a covenant's different than that. A covenant says this, I will be faithful to my promise to you even if you fail in your promise to me. That's what a covenant says. And the Bible has these peaks as it goes through. You can trace God's relationship with man by the covenants. There's five of them. God makes a covenant with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and then with David. And it's important that we have this, this, this framework of what those are. So see, first God makes this covenant with Adam. And God promises to Adam, Adam, I'm gonna make a good place for you. I will bless you and I will multiply you and I will have fellowship with you. And Adam, Adam, here's how you're supposed to relate to me. I need you to have dominion over the earth and Adam promises to do that. I need you to be fruitful and multiply and Adam's like, that sounds fun, I'll do that. And Adam, I need you to stay away from that tree. And what happens? Adam breaks covenant with God. But God doesn't break covenant with Adam, does he? Oh, we still live in an amazing place, don't we? It's not all it could have been because of the fall, but we still live in an amazing place. And so God comes when Adam breaks covenant and creates a path for restoration. Hey, I'm gonna make a provision for that. I'm gonna make some, there's a blood sacrifice I'm gonna institute here so we can continue to have relationship. And I got a plan. God says to Adam, someday, someday the seed of Eve, it's gonna crush that serpent's Head. It's known as the Adamic covenant. And then God makes a covenant with Noah. God says this, Noah, I will never again flood the earth. That covenant comes with a sign, isn't it? It's the rainbow. God says, I will never again. And you, Noah, for your part of the covenant, continue to walk faithfully in my ways. But Noah does what? He breaks covenant, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, takes off all his clothes. I don't know what's going on. It's not good. But we still have rainbows and God keeps his portion 
of the covenant. So then he moves forward. He moves to Abraham. He comes to this guy named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I know you're super, super old. I know you got no kids, but here's my promise to you, Abraham. I'll give you a family. I'll give you a legacy. I'll give you a land. It's the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham, here's your part. Walk faithfully and trust faithfully in God's ability to do this. And when you have a son, circumcise him. And Abraham breaks covenant. He gets a little impatient. God, I'm really old. My wife's, she's really old. So she said I could do you know, her handmaiden and she gave me this opportunity and that's kind of how we do it here. And so he breaks covenant and is, we have Ishmael. But God, what? Keeps his part of the covenant. And so we have Isaac and it's still blessed. So then we move forward to Moses. Right? God says to this, I've taken you out of the land of Egypt. I've brought you to this place. Now listen, you will be my people. I promise you will be my people and I will give you a land. You, for your part, need to keep my laws. And what do the people do? They break covenant pretty quickly too. Like the laws aren't even, like the tablets aren't even cooling off yet and they've built a golden calf and they're dancing and it's, they break covenant covenant, but God stays faithful, and God's people are still God's people. And this one gets a little confusing because God says to his people, you will always be my people, but then their part is to follow the laws, but then this covenant comes with this other little part, and I think it's important to understand. The other part is this. If you follow your part of the covenant, there will also be blessings, I'm gonna keep my covenant part no matter what you do, but you follow your part, there's gonna be these blessings for you and I'll multiply and I'll protect your land. But if you break your part of the covenant, there's gonna be consequences because I love you and I want that for you. And so when Israel breaks their part of the covenant, they are sent to Babylon, but are they still God's people? They're still God's people. And God still to this day has a plan for Israel. And so God makes one more covenant. He makes it with David. He says, I'll make your name great. And I will raise up a descendant from your line whose throne and whose kingdom will last forever. You, David, for your part, you and your descendants keep my laws and walk in my ways. Well, that's lasts like half a generation. By the time Solomon's done, it's all falling apart. They break covenant. But God has still brought Jesus out of David's line and is still being faithful. And what we need to see as you understand this, because it's big biblical theology here, is that these covenants are building on top of each other as we're moving through this narrative. God presents the world to Adam. He preserves the world through Noah. He initiates redemption through Abraham, establishes a nation through Moses, and then promises an eternal shepherd king through David. But then he brings Jesus who fulfills all of these, and what we end up in now is this thing called the new covenant. And it's what Paul is gonna talk a bunch about tonight. He says there's a new covenant. Jesus fulfilled all of those. It's Jesus who created the world, who came through the line of David, who died on the cross, making possible our redemption, establishing us, his church, as a new nation. The covenant with God that we have now is this. God promises us forgiveness and righteousness, we in turn promise that we will faithfully follow him as king. It's the new covenant, and it's so much 
better because it's building on everything that God has done. And the thing that I find, because as I look through this concept of covenant, I find it both incredibly encouraging and incredibly challenging. I find it incredibly encouraging because this, sometimes I'm not faithful to my part. And yet I see from the beginning of the book, God will always be faithful to me. God always keeps his covenant. It's so encouraging. But the part I find challenging is this. God says that his relationship with his people, this covenant that he has, these covenants that he makes and keeps, the best way for us to visualize them in our lives and to explain them to the world is through marriage. It's the one time we really use covenant these days. Everything else we do is a contract. But a marriage is a covenant. And so many times I think we fall into the habit of treating our marriages like a contract. Like, okay, if you stop putting wet towels on the floor, then I will stop nagging you about it. Contract. But covenant is what marriage is supposed to be, and the way God treats his church is supposed to be our example. And that every time my spouse fails, falls short, or doesn't faithfully love, honor, and cherish me the way that they covenanted on that day that we made these promises to each other, I, like God, am supposed to be the one who initiates reconciliation, makes a pathway back to intimacy. That's the example of covenant. That I will be what I promised to my wife that I would be, regardless of how she fulfills her side of that promise. It's so challenging, but when done well, it's so beautiful. And that's what God says. When done well in marriage, the world stands back and they're like, how does that work? It's like, it only works because I'm following God's example. Otherwise, it would be a contract. But covenant is so much deeper and so much larger. Okay, so prerequisites. We've got context, we've got covenant, and the one more thing that we need before we jump in is a character. Because we are gonna talk quite a bit tonight about Moses. And we all know Moses' story, but there's a little particular part of Moses' story that Paul is going to use as an example. And here's what happened. When Moses went up on the mountain to get the commandments, and he spent 40 days up there with God, he came down to talk to the people, and his face was glowing. And it says he didn't know it, which had to have been a surprise. And I don't think they have a bunch of mirrors around. So he comes down and Aaron's like, dude, something's up with your face. And he's like, someone find me a smooth puddle of water. I don't know. I don't know how you look into the mirror then. I guess you just got to trust. And it says that, so it says that Moses put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't be afraid of him. But then we find out a little bit more even in tonight's chapter, it says that, that what would happen is that, that, that glow, that Mo, the Mo glow that he had, it would slowly start to fade and, and he would leave the veil on because he didn't want the people to know that his glow was fading. But then every time he would go into the tabernacle to commune with God, he would remove the veil and his presence there with God would, would recharge him. You know, like, like the dinosaur glow-in-the-dark things on my, my son's ceiling, right? They get recharged during the day, and then they glow. So every time he would go in front of God, he would remove this veil, and he would glow again, and he would come out, and he would put it over his face. And Paul's gonna use that 
as he, as he talks about his ministry in the new covenant in such a cool, interesting way. Okay, everybody still with me? Sorry, the world's longest introduction, but we needed it. So we've got some context, a concept, and a character, and now we're going to jump into this chapter. And this chapter really breaks into two parts. Here's what Paul's gonna do. In verses one through six, he is going to basically say, these are my tactics as it comes to ministry, and these are their tactics, these Judaizers when it comes to ministry. And he's gonna highlight two differences between them. He's gonna say this, he's gonna say, my tactics in ministry are about accomplishments as opposed, are about people instead of accomplishments. And my tactics in ministry are about God's equipping instead of personal strength. So he starts by comparing and contrasting his tactics as a minister. And then in the second half of this chapter, he's gonna compare and contrast his message with their message. You guys ready? Let's jump in. First things first, Paul says this, your ministry, you're all about your accomplishments, but me, I think the most important thing is people. Verse one, are we beginning to commend ourselves again or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you. You, you, sell, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So remember what the Judaizers were doing. They were coming in with these letters of recommendation from these churches. Hey, this is, this is why this person's awesome. This is why you should listen to them. This is why they're a true preacher. And so Paul comes back and the Corinthians are like, hey, Paul, man, where's your letter of recommendation? Why should we listen to you? And Paul, it's so interesting what he says. He says, my letter of recommendation, it's you. Now, Paul could have just started rattling off things and crushed these guys. Are you kidding me? Letter of recommendation? Dude, I studied at the temple in Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel, possibly one of the best teachers in centuries. I have most of the beginning of the Bible memorized. Did your other guys have that memorized? Do they have it memorized? I have it memorized. I was so important to the work of God that he personally intervened and blinded me so that I would get my act together. Talk about like recruiting tactics. I studied under Jesus himself, Paul could have said. I've planted more churches than you have fingers. Are you kidding me? He doesn't say any of that. He says, you know what my letter of recommendation is? It's you. It's how I've poured into you. It's how I've loved you. It's how I've taught you. It's how your life has been changed. People are our letter of recommendation. Do you want to impress me? Do you want my respect as a man? Don't tell me about your 401k or your 400 horsepower sports car, how many employees you have or how many bowling trophies you've won. To quote Shania Twain, that don't impress me much. How's your marriage? You wanna impress me? How's your marriage? How would your wife say your marriage is? How are your kids? Who are you discipling? 
Who are you pouring into? Whose lives have been changed because you've been involved with them? That's the letter of recommendation that we take. I think one of the people that I have the most respect for in life is a friend of mine named Douglas. He's a man from Uganda who decided to start a church in Nairobi, Kenya. And what he said when he decided to start the church has humbled me and challenged me. He said, I decided I would give this ministry 10 years. For 10 years, I was gonna form no personal relationships. I wasn't gonna try to get married. I was gonna give everything to this ministry. It's been 12 years. He's got no 401k, no sports car, no spouse, no family, but a laundry list of people whose lives have been changed. He'll never have accolades with the world, but man, he's got a letter of recommendation. And now that it's been 10 years, he's met a lady. Hopefully they're getting married in June. I'm very excited. I get to go over and be the best man in that wedding. So a blessing, but man, those are the kind of people I look at and I go, that's impressive. Not your degree. Who are you and I pouring into? Challenges me. That's the first thing he says. He says, listen, my ministry, it's about people. But the second thing he says is this. He says, it's also about God's equipping and not my own personal strength. Look at verse four. He said, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward you. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Listen, the people coming into this church, they were trying to tell everybody how good they were. Paul's like, I couldn't do this without God. I couldn't do this. My confidence, my sufficiency, Paul says, doesn't come from how much I've studied, doesn't come from how much I've memorized. My sufficiency comes directly from Jesus himself because without that, I'm insufficient. I think very often, it's feeling unqualified that qualifies us most. I'm really worried when I talk to people about ministry and they're like, I'm just gonna kill this thing. I'm like, really? It sounds like Samson, right? He was really, really qualified. It didn't work out that well. So many of the great people in the Bible, when they were called to great things for God, the very first thing they said was, I can't, I'm insufficient. Moses says, I stutter. Gideon's like, dude, I'm a coward. I'm literally hiding in the barn. You want me to be a leader of armies? Are you kidding me? You're gonna to have to do a great work, God. And God says, I will. Isaiah says, I can't do this. I have a sinful past. I have unclean lips. I'm too sinful to carry forward your message. God says, I'll be sufficient. Jeremiah says, I'm too young. Ezekiel says, I'm too timid. Samson says, I'm strong enough. I think it's so interesting. And Sunday's message to me was such a great reminder of that. Because Nehemiah is a stallion, as we're gonna see as we go through that book. But he says at the very beginning, man, without God, I can't do this. And so you see as you go through that book, and we will as we study through it, he becomes a man of prayer. What a great reminder 
to all of us that that was. My sufficiency, Paul's sufficiency, it's going to come only through God, and that's gonna come through prayer and communion with my Father. It's just not about me. These guys think they're awesome. Be aware of anybody who thinks they're awesome and doesn't tell you that it's God through them that's making them do it. Okay, so he starts out with that compare and contrast with their two different styles or tactics in ministry. And now he switches and he's gonna talk about the message. And he's gonna say this. He's gonna say, my message versus their message. He says, the new covenant that I'm teaching, it's permanent. What those Judaizers are teaching, it was temporary. This covenant brings boldness instead of shame. It will bring you open hearts instead of hardened mind, and it has the power to transform everyone. And so he switches here, and he starts talking about the new covenant and the message. And he actually switches at the very end of verse six because he says this, for the letter kills, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Right there, if you were in the Corinthian church, you know Paul's gonna start talking about the law. That's one of the, that's like Matt's giant guns. They go, oh, I know what Paul's gonna talk about. He's gonna talk about the law. In fact, we still use this phrase, don't we? The letter of the law and the spirit of the law, right? We still use this phrase. Paul says right here, okay, we're switching. We're talking about the law. And here's what it says, verse seven. Now, if the ministry of death, the law, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Paul here is comparing and contrasting the covenant of the law with the new covenant. And he's pretty harsh, isn't he? He says, man, the law kills. He calls it the ministry of death and the ministry of condemnation. He's harsh because he's trying to make a point. And his point is this, the law was always supposed to be temporary. It was never supposed to be permanent. It wasn't bad, but when you take something that's supposed to be temporary and you make it permanent, that becomes a problem, right? Like when your 24-year-old son moves home from college. It's like, hey, can I crash in the basement for a few months till I get a job? Now he's 38. He has as many job prospects as he has hairs left on his head. Right? Supposed to be temporary. It's permanent now. That's a problem. When the roof started to leak and you threw the tarp up on top of it, that was a good temporary solution. But it's been there for five years and it's made some friends. Okay? Now your neighbors are starting to drive a little further around your house and a little faster. It's supposed to be temporary. Now it's permanent. Don't make what's temporary permanent. I know you were super excited about that, those cornrow braids you got in Mexico. But you're home now, and they're not working with your job as a bank teller, okay? They were supposed to be temporary. Don't make it permanent. And that's what Paul is saying here. Saying, listen, 
the law was great. The law was important. He unpacks this concept a little bit more in Galatians, and he says this. He says, listen, the law was a schoolmaster. Laws are hugely important. Rules and regulations are important, aren't they? I mean, what would happen to a county if you suddenly took away all the laws that made drugs illegal? Oh, wait. I know what would happen. Rules and regulations are important, aren't they? But rules and regulations never produce permanent change. They don't produce permanent change. They were only supposed to be temporary. And that's what he says here. He says, listen, the plan was always Jesus. The plan was always Jesus. From the very beginning, from the covenant that God made with Adam, when he said, someday the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head, the plan was always Jesus. The law was there to protect us and to guide us and to push us towards Jesus. But even in the Old Testament, we see that there's a foreshadowing coming. It's Jeremiah 31. And here's what it says in Jeremiah 31. It says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's the new covenant. I will forgive your iniquity and I will remember your sin no more. Don't make, Paul says, what was supposed to be temporary permanent because it never produces permanent change. And I have to remember this in my own life when I start to tend towards this Judaizing tendency. When I start to say, okay, listen, I need to put some rules and regulations around my life, and I do, and they're important, but it's not those rules and regulations, they never produce a permanent change in me. I have never kept a New Year's resolution for an entire year. Maybe you guys are much more awesome at it than I am. I just don't make it. It doesn't produce change inside of me. Yes, I think we should make all drugs illegal again. And when we do, we might as well close down the liquor stores and the bars. Is that gonna help? Probably. Is it gonna create revival? Probably rebellion is what it'll create. But it won't create revival. I have to remember in my own heart, in my own life, Permanent change only comes through God transforming me from the inside. And I have to remember that as well as I'm walking alongside of people who are struggling. Yes, let's set up some boundaries for my kids. Yes, I want to set up some boundaries for my kids. It keeps them safe. It keeps them on track. But if I don't teach them who Jesus is, if I don't teach them to fall in love with him, it's never going to produce a permanent change in their life to where they become the kind of man and woman that I want for them. 
The law is temporary. It's good, but Jesus is permanent. That's what Paul says here. He says, don't go back to that. It's Jesus that changes us. It's Jesus that will make a permanent new life within you. He says, that's temporary. This is permanent. And then he goes on to say, listen, the law, if you're living by it, it produces shame. But this, walking with Jesus, where my iniquities are forgotten and my sins are forgiven, it produces boldness. Verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Moses was ashamed because that glow that he had from God was slowly starting to fade and so he hid it. But Paul says here, listen, this new covenant we walk in of grace, it produces boldness. What are the worst four words that you can hear in any relationship? Whether it's parent, child, teacher, student, boss, employee, spouse, husband. What are those four words that just strike terror into your heart? We need to talk, right? We need to talk. And what do you immediately do when you hear those words? You bring out your historical Rolodex, don't you? Okay, how long has it been since the last time we had that we need to talk thing? Okay, it's been a week. What have I done in the week? Have I done, okay, did I hang up my towel? Did I do, right? And you run through that list and then you go, oh, that's gotta be it. Dang it. But has this ever happened to you? I think it happened to me once in my whole life, but it was cool, so I remember it. Someone said, we need to talk. And so I ran through the list and I was like, I'm good. Like, I got nothing. Like, if you knew everything I'd done in the last week, you'd be pleased with me. So you must just want to talk to me. That's actually what Paul is saying here. He says, listen, when God comes to you and he says, hey, we need to talk, you come to God and you go, yeah, and he goes, I miss you. I want to hang out. I want you to be in my presence. But, but God, I had all that, that stuff that I did, that the sit, I don't remember it. Well, what about that? Aren't you mad at me? You're forgiven of that. You've got my son's righteousness. I just want to be with you. I just want to fellowship with you. It gives us boldness when we deal with God, our Father. But it also gives me boldness in ministry because I know who I am. And I also know who I am. Someone says, how can you be up there teaching? You're a sinner. I know. I'm also a king in training. But, but you're, you're a liar. Yeah, I know. But I'm also forgiven son and daughter of a universe creator. You're not perfect. I know. But by God's grace, I'm slowly being changed into a new creation more and more like him. I have boldness because I know who I am, but I know who Christ has made me and is making me. And it gives me boldness. But when I operate simply under laws and rules and regulations, and I think my worth in God's kingdom is based on how well I've been doing with this set of rules, I don't feel boldness, I feel shame. And like Moses, I wanna hide my face. This gives us boldness. 
And then next, the new covenant does this. It gives us open hearts instead of hardened minds. Verse 14, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Here's what Paul says. Their hearts are hardened. Their minds are hardened. They they can't see what it is that God has for them. Because here's what I know about myself. Whenever I am tending towards this Judaizing where I'm putting my value, my worth on my relationship with God based on my own performance, I end up with a hardened mind. I always do. Because I'm either doing really well and then I become hardened towards people who are struggling. So get your act together. You should be awesome like me. And I become hardened towards people. Or I'm struggling and I become hardened in my mind towards God. This is ridiculous. I don't wanna go to church. I don't wanna be around his people. I can't do this anymore. I just keep failing. And I find myself hardened. Paul says, man, that's not how it's supposed to be. He says, when you're walking in this permanent hope of glory, when you are under the ministry of righteousness instead of the ministry of condemnation, you end up with an open heart instead of a hardened mind. Because what does he say in Jeremiah? He says, I will write my laws on your heart. Sometimes that's actually harder, I think. If there was just this list of, like take your relationship with your spouse. If your spouse was like, listen, if you just do these 10 things every week, then our relationship is gonna be absolutely perfect. And you could just go down the checklist. Go check, 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 check. Awesome. I said, I love you once a day. I said, right? That's not a relationship. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna fail and your spouse is gonna be like, I only gave you 10 things. This is ridiculous. Are you kidding me? And then your relationship will be hardened. But instead, God says this, and I've written it on your heart. I mean, you've got to search your heart to find my will for your life. You've got to search your heart. You're going to have to spend time with me. This is going to have to be a relationship where you open your heart to me and my will and my word, and we together will walk this thing out. It's much more difficult, but it's so beautiful. He says, the law will only lead you to a hardened mind. Walking in covenant with Jesus, with him as your king, and him is your forgiver, leads to an open heart. And then finally, he says this. The law, those tablets, that relationship with Moses, it had the power to transform one person. But the new covenant has the power to transform every one of us. Verse 18, possibly one of the best verses in the New Testament. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord We all, all of us, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. He says this, what a cool promise. If you approach God with an unveiled face, bold in who you know you are as his son or daughter, then he will change you from glory to greater glory 
through the power of his spirit, one degree at a time. But here's what I know about myself to be true, and it's probably true of you as well. I'm a lot like Moses. I too have a rod that can split seas in half and get what, no. (laughs) If I'm not constantly getting renewed by being in the presence of my father, my light starts to dim. My, My glow starts to go away. See, what's so cool about this entire thing that Paul is walking out here is the new covenant, what it gives us beyond righteousness and grace and this promise of God never walking away from us, it gives us access to our Father. That's what changes us. When we come into his presence through worship, through his word, through communion, it recharges us. And it changes us from glory to greater glory so we too can go out and be a light in the world. And so the question I have for myself and for us as we leave tonight is this, what recharges you? What kind of stuff do you do with God that recharges you? Is it worship music? Is it a long walk? Is it, you know, sometimes there's this thing that I like to do in the summertime. I like to fish. But um, I've gotten into this new style of fishing that never catches anything, so it's become a whole different deal. Um, But I I have this place on the river that I like to go in the summertime before work when the sun comes up at like 5 a.m., and I go and I stand in the river for an hour, and I cast, and I don't catch fish. And it recharges me. And I don't listen to music, and I don't ever take anything. I just, and there will be times in, in my life, in my marriage, and you can do this for other people too, where my wife will be like, you need to go fishing tomorrow morning. I'm like, yeah, she goes, you're a little recharging. And I commune there, and I I watch the mist come off the water, and I talk to my father, and we don't catch fish together. It's great. What recharges you? What recharges you? What activity that you do in the presence of God shows his glory so brightly to you that your face begins to glow and you are transformed. I pray we would all do more of that. Amen? Amen. Father, I thank you for this wonderful passage full of just interesting information as Paul walks us through this new covenant life that we have, how it's permanent, Lord, how it gives us boldness and open hearts, and that as we draw near to you in the access that has been granted to us through your Son, that we can be changed from one degree of glory to another degree of glory until that day when we see you face to face and we live in paradise together forever. Thank you for those promises. In Jesus' name, amen.